Okay, welcome friends uh, to a very special episode of Forefront 360. I'm Cody Schweikert, and I have the distinct privilege of catching up with Dr. Benjamin Myers today. Uh, Among other things, we're going to be talking about his forthcoming book of poetry titled Black Sunday, The Dust Bowl Sonnets. And I am super excited to have Dr. Myers with us today. Uh, He is the former poet laureate of the state of Oklahoma. He is a professor of literature and English at Oklahoma Baptist University. He's the author of two other books of poetry uh, titled Elegy for Trains and Laps Americana. Uh, He's also authored dozens of uh, other poems that have been published in literary journals and magazines. In short, uh, this man is what I like to call the real deal. Uh, And I get to spend a bit of time with him today. And I got to meet him actually at the uh, the Forefront Festival in 2017 in Rochester, where he delivered the keynote address. Um, Even more important than his resume, though, uh, is his clear love for Jesus Christ. Uh, He loves the Lord and he loves his wife and he loves his children. And this is really clear if you spend any amount of time with him. So. It's a pleasure to have you on uh, the podcast, Dr. Myers. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I believe so much in what Forefront is doing, and so I'm just thrilled to be a a small part of the work. Well, we are thrilled to have you. So before we get into the meat of this episode, I, uh, I just came up with a couple of fun questions that personally I just was dying to know. Um, so the first one, uh, involves your reading life. And so uh, as far as reading goes, are you a fan of this uh, Kindle ebook phenomenon or do you prefer the old school paper and ink? Yeah, I, I have to confess to being thoroughly traditional on this point. I really, I can't read well on a screen. Um, <laughs> you know, I, f- I find the environmental argument compelling, but not quite compelling enough. uh, yeah my my uh constant boogeyman is the creeping gnosticism of our our culture (laughs) fear of materiality and and i feel like electronic reading may may contribute to that in some way so so i'm a paper guy all the way oh man i had a feeling you were going to bring that up the g word uh i I really (laughs) did um and i totally agree with you man i uh i've got a, a minor book hoarding problem and uh I just love, I mean, I, I love reading books almost as much as I love collecting them and possessing them and holding them. So I totally agree with you. Um, yeah, don't think of it as a hoarding problem, right? We're giving a home to books that would be homeless yes. otherwise. Yes, and as the Lord has called me to this type of ministry, and so I'm, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm very, I'm, you're right, I'm very giving in that way. So, um, <laughs> yeah, thank you. So I know, uh, obviously, you're a professor. Um, That's a big part of your life. Uh, You probably just finished uh, reading and grading a bunch of student papers. Uh, But what else or who else are you reading lately, if you've had any time? Yeah, um, you know, I I tend to do the sort of four books at at once thing, you know, kind of a Mm -hmm. book poetry, some nonfiction, some fiction. So I've been reading... uh, Angela O'Donnell's book of sonnets, actually, Still Pilgrim, which is uh, uh, out from Paraclete Press. And I've really been enjoying those very moving and tightly constructed 
poems. Mm. Uh, I've been reading Dostoevsky's uh, The Idiot for my, my fiction fix, um, simply because I'd neglected it until this point and thought, well, it's summer, so time, mm. time to catch up. Mm. And, and the usual smattering of, of theology and such. So I just finished David Bentley Hart's The Beauty of the Infinite after a very long struggle slash enjoyment of it. Is that uh is that an older book or is is he still alive or uh he's still alive. I think the book's two thousand and three maybe. Um okay. book on, on the aesthetics of Christian truth. Very interesting and useful volume. Mm, that's good. So are you usually reading like uh like you say, smattering, are you you in different genres all the time? I mean you can't re- be reading six novels at once, right? Right, yeah. I try try to break it up into different different kinds of books and sort of keep keep several going at a time to satisfy mm. those different reading urges, you know. That's right. That's right, good. Yeah, I just wrote all those down, so thanks. I'll I'll check those out. Um so in that vein, uh what role would you say reading plays in the work of uh, a writer, poet, how important is reading for any, anybody listening that uh, is determined to become a, a writer, a poet, any, anything like that? Yeah, I, I think it's practically the most important thing. You know, I, I, art calls to art in us. I think when we encounter beauty and, and meaning in someone else's work, I think it stirs that in us. Um, so I, I find it impossible to to write without without reading. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes I have students who worry. Well, they you know they say, well, if I read a lot before I write, won't it won't it influence me? Right? Mm-hmm. Of course, I always say, well, if you read enough, it all gets so mixed up together that it it comes out as your own. So mm-hmm. You shouldn't fear influence. So I think I think we could all use influence anyway. I know. I never thought of it like that. Um, yeah, listeners, forgive me if I'm dumbfounded throughout uh, the the podcast here. Sometimes I'll just get caught up in what Dr. Myers is saying. So yeah, I never thought of that like that. I had my own little answer to that question, but it uh, you answered it differently. Thanks. Um, okay. Well, how do you find uh, reading in in your in your oh, work? F- first of all, I'm I'm super amateur writing. I, I've published like uh, a handful of uh, three line poems, you know, like haiku stuff. So, uh, we're, we're not exactly, yeah, it's, it is, it's a cool start. Um, we're not exactly in the same, uh, ballpark, but, uh, I would say, you know, I think when I was, I first, I first took a couple of, uh, creative writing classes in college in my undergrad and night after night, I was just like desperate to try to write something good and original. And I was just kind of like running out of stuff. And, um, I realized that, uh, I really needed to be reading something and uh, it, it was humbling, you know, because I just wanted, I was so f- focused on myself, but uh, yeah, I, I think that really enriched my, uh, any kind of inspiration I, I have. That's a, that's a wonderful point though, about the, the humility that we accrue in, in reading others. I think, I think that's an artistic asset for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the big thing that I'm excited to discuss today is this this new book you have coming out. Oh, actually, before we get there, this one, I didn't prepare you for this question, Dr. Myers, but I've got to ask it before we move on. 
I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here, but what book of the Bible should we flip to if we want to find great poetic imagery? Sure. Well, obviously the the Psalms um, are sort of ground zero for biblical poetry. I mean, not not that poetry is not there, you know, throughout. I mean, obviously, you know, in Acts, you have Paul quoting the Greek poets, and there Mm -hmm. are um, poetic riffs throughout the prophets. And, and of course, from one viewpoint, every word that proceeds from Jesus' mouth is, is poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but it's the psalms that that are most sort of directly intentionally in the poetic tradition, and that are full of astounding images. I think I think often we we forget this in the church because we get so accustomed to them. But when you mm-hmm. just sort of go back and and look at them afresh, and sometimes switching up your translation helps this. Mm. You know, you're astounded to find you know, images in, in the Psalms, you know, God puffing out his nostrils in anger, uh, mm. or uh, you know, David withering his bones, melting on his bed. Um, just they're so intensely physical uh, in the mm. way that great poetry is. Mm. So God is not a, a Gnostic. <laughs> Certainly not. No, um, I, you know he. he reveals himself to us in his in his son in the flesh and uh, mm-hmm. makes himself known to us in in the visible things of the world as as it says in Romans and so mm-hmm. uh he's certainly immaterial beyond beyond matter but no no enemy to it right mm-hmm. his plan is to redeem it someday yeah. so good um Okay, good. You passed that test. Uh, I didn't, guys. I didn't prepare him for that. He just had it off the top of his head. So, uh, uh, on that note, I, I think one thing we can all expect um, from this new book, which again is titled "Black Sunday: The Dust Bowl Sonnets," is rich imagery, like concrete sensory imagery. And uh, so, w- with that in mind, would you just refresh us briefly? on a definition of Gnosticism. We've mentioned it a couple times already, um, what that is and why we should avoid it, especially in Christian poetry and arts in general. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Gnostic heresy has roots uh, all the way back um, before the time of Christ, and uh, arguably um, there are touches of Gnosticism in the the Platonic uh, tradition, so... Mm-hmm. Plato is redeemable, as Augustine shows us. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the Gnostics held uh, one that um, saving knowledge uh, is reserved for the few, right? so that's the the origin of of, of the heresy's title in, in the Greek gnosis or knowledge. And so there's mm-hmm. a sort of complicated occult kind of information you had to have for salvation, according to the Gnostics. And related to that, and the part of the heresy that I find most persistent and uh, dangerous in in the history of the church is their uh, antipathy to material creation. Uh, the Gnostics, in in various forms, including the Manichaeans and the and the Docetic heresies, held that matter, the physical world. Uh, is not the creation of a good God, but the creation of uh, an evil entity opposed to God, and that true salvation is 
deliverance from the physical into the purely spiritual, which I fear to quite a few contemporary Christians sounds like orthodoxy, um, mm-hmm. but but of course it's not. The real Christian um, orthodoxy teaches that uh, God will redeem his creation, which is good uh, in mm-hmm. his eyes, and that you know we won't live forever on clouds playing harps in some sort of Casper the Ghost uh, existence, but we'll live uh, not only in a, in a new heaven, but in a, a new earth, in a new Jerusalem, uh, which in resurrected bodies. Mm. So I think that good poetry in its particularity honors uh, the goodness of creation and mm. the importance of matter. So I like to say to my writing students, matter matters. Mm. I'm just trying to write this down. I don't pay for classes at uh, Oklahoma Baptist University, but I am stealing a little bit of uh, wisdom right now. So I'm taking copious notes. Uh, that's good. And so, because uh, I've got, you're welcome to. <laughs> oh, good, good. So, so how does that, um, how does that meet us in, in Christian art in general? Um, as, as far as writing, I know, I know that's your, uh, that's your expertise, of course. But um, Christian art in general, do you see that in other mediums? Yes, absolutely. I, I think the you know the truly Christian artist is the one who pays attention to materiality, not the one who who turns from it for some supposed higher purpose. So you know, part depending on the the spirit and intent of the painter, right? A, a painting of a um, wheat field can be as uh, deeply Christian as uh, paintings of scenes from the, from the Bible. Uh, mm. if taken in the right sort of spirit of praise. Mm. Um, you know, we, we tend to think that the more abstract something is, the more spiritual it is. And uh, that's a, a false dichotomy. Mm. That is so good. And that is everywhere. Yeah, helpful to be aware of that. One of, one of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller, says, uh, you know, talking about New Jerusalem and God's plan to redeem the material, says that, you know, your feet are going to hit the ground in the kingdom of God. You know, yeah. we're going to hug and kiss and eat and drink in the kingdom of God. And uh, yeah, I think when I first heard that, there was like this huge relief I felt because I... I was, if I can be honest, a little bored by the idea yeah. of floating around on a, a cloud with a harp, um, yeah. especially because I have no musical uh, inclinations. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Isn't it so much more exciting to think yeah. about um, being, be, really being there when we're there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks for reminding us of that. That's a, that's a, that's a good reason to hope. So, good. So I, I want to turn our attention a little bit more to uh, the the new book we have coming out, and I'm excited about it. I notice that historically you've enjoyed using various poetic forms in your work. Um, you, you like to see what poetry can do, and, and so it's versatile, and you like to use it that way. Um, anywhere from free verse to more traditional forms. 
So would you talk us through your decision to do a book of sonnets, assuming that the Dust Bowl Sonnets is exclusively sonnets? Sure. And and it is uh, sonnets mainly. There are a few uh, interludes, but mostly it's sonnets or variations on sonnet form. And uh, really, there are kind of two considerations at work in that decision. One was just, um, I'm more and more drawn to form as a way of sort of writing in, uh, in community with authors living and dead. Right? Um, mm. I feel like working in a particular form puts me in a conversation with people who have used that form before. and. Um, in a strange way, can be a kind of uh, communion. You know, I think about Eliot's uh, essay, uh, Tradition and in the Individual Talent, and he talks about the way that individual works of, of literature, or really any art, I would suppose, are, are like almost like notes on a piano. And you know, when a new one plays, it interacts with the ones before and changes the chord that's that's being played to kind of mm. abstract a metaphor from Eliot. And, uh, you know, I, I don't have any uh, pretensions of shifting the key or changing the chord from major to minor, but just you feel like in that opportunity to join a conversation, you know, I can add my little tone to something that's, that's already there. And uh, mm. I find that meaningful. That's for the first reason, to join a tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, The second reason is because I wanted to do a book that was in, um, to a great extent, was narrative in form. And I've just found it nearly impossible for me, at least, to write narrative in in free verse. Um, Mm. It just quickly descends, I think, into prose, Mm. I think. A sustained narrative, especially, I think, needs some sort of formal stricture on it to keep it in the poetic realm. You know, the, the usual, of course, and an obvious one would be would be blank verse, the unrhymed iambic pentameter of Paradise Lost and, and mm-hmm. Shakespeare's plays. But I'm I'm more sort of a lyrical poet experimenting with uh, making a narrative out of a bunch of smaller lyrics. And so the sonnet, with its unique sort of shape of thought and uh, rhythms, seemed to me like uh, um, a good way of exploring that. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. That would be cool to listen back to when I get my hands on a copy. So so when I, when I in my uh, sophomoric wisdom, uh, when I first started, t- you know, tinkering around with poetry, I thought, oh, no, I don't want anything to do with forms or traditions. I mean, those are <laughs> restrictive. And, and the uh-huh, fun of uh-huh. this is just being creative and doing whatever I want and putting in all this uh, as you as you make fun of profound white space in my uh, in, in my poems. And uh, what would you I know that's not right. Would you just push back on that and say, actually, there there is a lot of freedom in. Uh, yeah, form. You know, one of my favorite comments on that is the uh, Irish poet Paul Muldoon, uh, who says that uh, form is a straitjacket the way a straitjacket is a straitjacket to Houdini. 
(laughs) part of the joy of of form is the interaction with the 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 stricture and the the sort of frisian and discovery that that entails and uh you know for me it's 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 almost an element of inspiration and it's working in form i feel like i'm drawing on more than my own meager resources that there's uh something bigger I can tap into and, and both work with and, and wrestle against uh, in hopefully artistically productive ways. Mm. It, especially if, if you're in a dialogue, you know, like you said, you're, you can put you in a conversation with other people who've used it. Yes, exactly. And, uh, um, you know, sometimes those are, are agreeable conversations and sometimes they're, they're arguments um, mm-hmm. But uh, either way, I, I find that stimulating as as an artist, and uh, better than than trying to go it alone. Mm. Well, that well, that's humbling too. I think you've totally changed my opinion on it in one sentence. So <laughs> the the straitjacket, I won't forget that. Very cool. So in, in you, you've published two books before this, is that correct? Yes. Two two full books of poetry: Elegy for Trains and Laps Americana. Now, fatherhood played a significant role in, in those books in some way. Can we expect to find a similar motif in the forthcoming work? Absolutely. Um, the, the sonnets are all uh, written from the perspective of several different characters, um, but sort of at the center of, of these characters is a, a family <laughs> of uh, farmers in the panhandle of Oklahoma. Uh, a father, mother, and and their daughter. Um, And so there's quite a bit of sort of fatherly worry, fatherly anxiety, fatherly pride, those things that uh, I write so often about. Um, Mm -hmm. Of course, one of the surprising things to me when I was writing the book is how much motherhood there is uh, in these poems Mm. as well. In some ways, it's really the mother who is the the hero of the book. Um, and I think that may be a product of just coming out of my uh, own artistic self-obsession a little bit and watching the wonderful work of my wife as she mothers and thinking back on my own childhood, my own strong and uh, hopeful mother um, and wanting to pay tribute to that as well. Um, so in some ways it's a continuation of my previous work in, in focusing on those family dynamics, but, mm-hmm. um, maybe more, uh, in tribute of mothers this time. Mm. Yeah, that, that's so, I, I think it's powerful when you write from what you know, and, uh, it, it's clear that those are big parts of your lives. And so, um, I, I hope to get into that a little bit more with, with, uh, some of the questions we have coming up. So, uh, Dr. Myers, when you were you were named uh, Poet Laureate of Oklahoma, uh, the governor said this about you. She said, Dr. Myers demonstrates a deep love and kinship to Oklahoma. His poetry about our state offers a nuanced view of our people, our land, and the values that we hold dear, end quote. So it's clear that uh, you love your homeland. And uh, when I met you, you know, I, you maybe don't remember this, but I was like, 
oh yeah, Oklahoma's great. I just read The Grapes of Wrath, you know, by John Steinbeck. <laughs> and uh basically the only piece of literature I was familiar with. Um but uh the governor the governor is saying there that you had a nuanced view of the people, land, the values that um you hold dear. It's just so clear that I mean you you live there, that's your home. And so talk us through the significance of place and even time in your general philosophy of art in this work in particular. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways that comes back to the uh anti Gnostic aspect of uh of art. Um mm-hmm. you know, that that places are of course some ways the most obvious ways in which the material world is is given to us and so i think not just as artists but as as people that it's very important that we think uh of place in in terms of gift how how is a place given to us and and how are we given to it um mm-hmm. i think in some ways that's uh really the the genesis of a, a lot of great art. I'm, I'm frankly very suspicious of art that seems to happen nowhere. Right? I, I think the comparison I made at uh, at the festival was that it's like that cheese that comes in the clean wrap, you know, <laughs> it has no <laughs> no taste of earth and no, no particularity to it, whereas yeah. good art is, is real cheese. And, you know, you can tell there, there was a, a cow who, who ate the grasses of a particular place involved, mm-hmm. um, and I and I think that helps us acknowledge how place is given to us, um, which mm-hmm. is is a way of you know giving, in some ways, gratitude for uh, for diversity. I'm grateful for the particularity of Oklahoma, and I'm grateful that Oklahoma is different from New York or San Francisco, not because mm-hmm. those places are bad. But because that sort of variety just speaks to the glorious uh, creativity of God and his endless giving to us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, this idea of being given a place and giving back to that place and the people there it is something that you've, you've really been helping me understand just in the last few minutes, but even... Um, on Facebook, believe it or not, you're you're a bright light in the dark place of Facebook, the dark dungeon of social media. And so, yeah, I love being your friend there and uh, hearing, um, especially, well, there, there was um, this impromptu commencement address that you gave to recent college graduates. And uh, I won't read that here, but if, if our listeners have not read this little uh, commencement address, uh, you should creep onto Dr. Meyer's uh, Facebook account, scroll down. It's not that far down. Um, I know because I just did a bunch of creeping earlier today. And uh, you should totally go find this on Facebook because it is, um, I think, really important. Um, but in, in addition to that, one of the really memorable bits you posted on social media stands out to me um, when, when I was thinking about um, what to chat with you about today. And you wrote this a few months ago. There is no middle of nowhere because there is no nowhere. Every place is some place. If you think some place is nowhere, it is probably you who are small. So I, I got to ask, uh, was this a reaction to a pattern of thought you've noticed in the arts or our culture? 
Like, do you recall yeah. what what brought this profound truth bomb to the interwebs? Could you speak <laughs> to that? I don't. I don't know if I would characterize it that way, but uh, um, I did. I did. <laughs> there, 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 there must have been some particular uh, burr in my saddle that day, but but I don't actually remember what it was. But uh, there, there is a general sort of assumption that um, somehow there's more. I don't know what valor or nobility in living some places rather than others, and uh, I simply don't understand that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think if you look at any place, there there are the deepest human stories in that place. Um, mm-hmm. There's no small town in America or or little village in France or or um, corner of Iraq where you can't find, you know, all the elements of the, the Iliad and the Odyssey um, mm. displayed. So, mm. you know, I, I understand that over the course of artistic and intellectual history that it's been necessary for artists and thinkers to sometimes congregate in places like Florence or, or uh, Rome or, or New York. Um, I question if that's the case anymore, um, mm-hmm. given our our ability to travel and to communicate so freely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also question if um, that was necessary for the production of art. I think it was necessary maybe at some point for the dissemination mm-hmm. of art, but I don't think it was ever necessary for its its production. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's important. I think that's a, a huge lie that many people believe is that, uh, oh, I'm, I don't live here or I don't live there, so I can't really make good art or art that anyone would care about, um, right. which is which is I think is a lie. And I think that's what you're on to um, w- when you talk about um, writing locally or from personal experience or place, uh, you, you say that this is the best way to create something universal being particular, uh, especially in your, in your poetry. Could you talk about that? What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think a, a lot of people think that if they include a particular detail and imagery in their poem, it'll be too specific and the reader won't be able to, to relate. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I think that's a, a bad theory because um, we, can't, we can't relate to nothing. Um, mm. We don't have to have identical experiences to um, to feel what someone else feels, I think we translate those things. I think we we look for points of connection, and I think the more specific a writer is, the more the more we can find those those points of connection. And and, and you know, one way I know this is just from my own reading experiences. Uh, you know, I can read an, an African writer like Chinua Achebe and uh mm-hmm. be deeply moved by the particularity of of his experience and his time and place. I don't feel shut out by the the particular detail. I feel called into it. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, in some ways this sort of re- relates back to our, our conversation about the givenness of place. You know, I feel like as artists we're given a place uh and it's our sort of job to be the the stewards of its representation to speak of it. And so I think it's when we do that, I think there's, there's a resonance in the work that will connect 
beyond beyond the region, uh, but also mm-hmm. in the region. Right? I think mm-hmm. it's important for both. Yeah. Uh, sometimes people use the term uh, regional artist as if that's a uh, a bad thing. Um, mm. But I, I take that to be high praise. I think that's what all great great art is. Uh, you know, you go back to Shakespeare and uh, you know. Uh, the Forest of Arden and, and Stratford-upon-Avon is just all over his work, and that's part of what makes it great. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I, I, I wanted to ask this one again. I didn't plan for, for this one to come up, but as you're talking, I just I find myself running into this all the time, this idea that uh, as a Christian, you know, I, I worship a holy God, and um, I'm going to meet him someday. And, you know, by grace have been saved. All, all this is true. I know this. Um, but in my in my work, when I'm writing something or doing anything, really, I'm I'm always wondering about questions of restriction. Like, oh, I could just I could write this story so much better or people would like this story more if I didn't have the restrictions of, you know, censorship or what, whatever, mm-hmm. um, whatever you you know, whatever I assume goes along with following Christ. And so yeah. what would you say to that? Yeah. Um, you know, of course, the Bible tells us what, whatsoever things are, are pure and lovely, right? Uh, mm-hmm. but, but also whatsoever things are true. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I think there's a uh, responsibility to to tell the truth from, from within the fallen world. Of course, that doesn't mean sort of gratuitous uh, um, obscenities and and vulgarities. Right? I mean, sometimes people ask me, both both as a Christian educator and as a Christian writer, do, don't I feel uh, restricted? And I always want to say, well, what do you think I want to say? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, I really feel compelled to push it too much. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you know, I think we we write. When we write, we write the fallen world because that's the vantage point from which we know redemption. We know heaven. That's how we we measure our our need for it and our our longing for it. Um, mm. You know, there's that famous line of Lewis's in uh, *Mere Christianity* about how if we find this world doesn't meet our needs, then it, it must mean we're we're made for another one. And uh, I think about that sometimes when I'm thinking, well, do I want to write another story of struggle and difficulty, or you know, wouldn't it be nice to just write the um, the happy thing? But, uh, mm-hmm. In some ways, if you if you write the happy thing without acknowledging the not yetness of of redemption, mm-hmm. then then you write a lie and you you undermine the true beauty and value of the the redemption. Mm. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, I, I'm gonna. I'm glad this is being recorded. I'm gonna listen back to this. Um, I'm asking for myself, but I hope this is relevant for uh, for our listeners too. I think it will be. So, where are we at here? I'm spellbound. I'm getting lost in my notes here. Um, we we have this uh, this book coming out, and Black Sunday, the Dust Bowl Sonnets. Uh, I I did a bit of research because um, I remember learning about uh, the Dirty Thirties. As a kid, um, I don't know if that's an appropriate way to say it, but that's what they told us. That's what they told me when I was 10. So uh, I remember this uh, just really 
dark uh, period in history, especially in this region, um, Oklahoma, Texas, some of the surrounding states. And so uh, I, I just wanted to let our listeners know that this this was like a big deal. This uh, dust storm basically that raged kind of intermittently throughout the, the decade of the 1930s um, in that region of the country. And uh, something about, uh, I'm no scientist by any means, but something about how the, the farmers were um, just it was kind of overworking the soil. And uh, they, they released this, uh, the topsoil turned to dust because they took away the grass or something like that. And it just resulted in this uh, devastating, damaging period of, of dust and black blizzards. And so what would, would you just walk us through, give us a quick overview of uh, what that was? I'm sure you had to do a bit of research if you didn't already, if you weren't already familiar with this. Yeah, it was so, sort of exactly like you said. There there was a sort of a boom in uh, wheat farming, particularly in uh, sort of the, uh, the panhandles of uh, Oklahoma and Texas and uh, parts of Kansas and uh, New Mexico. And uh, vast amounts of land, and part of it has to do with sort of, you know, the development of uh, the tractor as a technology for farming and, and that sort of thing, but also sort of outside interest, industrial farming, replacing sort of small-scale family operations, um, what they called suitcase farmers, people who would come in and plant a crop and then get back on the train and uh, come back in the fall. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So vast amounts of land stripped of the, the grasses that, that had held the soil in place, presumably since the beginning. And uh, so that did result, along with sort of uh, an unlucky kind of coincidence of, of changing weather patterns, you know, the inevitable drought that we now know comes sort of in regular cycles mm-hmm. uh, in the region. Um, that resulted in in massive uh, um, dust storms, dust that could, you know, bury a barn, that that choked cattle, that gave, uh, you know, dust pneumonia to the the children and the elderly, that just basically shut down that region for all uh, purposes um, for really the better part of a decade, and so it's one of the major ecological tragedies of of American history. And it's also was was culturally devastating. Families forced out. Um, you know, everyone knows the you referenced Steinbeck earlier, the sort of story of the, the Okies uh mm-hmm. off to California. So that, you know, even today a lot of us in Oklahoma have have California relatives, and a really? lot of people in California have uh, roots roots in Oklahoma. Um, wow! And so there's there's just a major sort of cultural disruption uh, that occurred, and um, frankly, just a lot of despair in in the period. And so one thing I wanted to do was explore that that despair and uh, how one finds hope and it in a strange way I feel like this book about this major disaster is my my most hopeful book yet wow. maybe 
maybe just the paradox of Christian truth. Mm. Wow. And, and how, I mean, writing about something hard and despairing that actually happened is a difficult thing, especially if you weren't personally there. I mean, the fact that you're, you know, live in Oklahoma has got to help. But how how did you avoid, you know, the mistakes of romanticizing this uh, disaster that happened to real life people? I mean, that's yeah. something you got to be aware of. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, that that's 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 hard. Um, you know, and I, and I don't know if I entirely avoided romanticizing it. I think uh, you know all historical events pick up romantic overtones as we we retell them. Um, mm. But I tried to ground it in in real experience. Um, mm. So you know, one thing I did was read firsthand accounts. Mm. Of, uh, of of the Dust Bowl, that was very uh, useful for sort of seeing what it felt like uh, from the inside. Um, also, I just I tried very hard to focus on. So we were discussing earlier particular imagery that would mm-hmm. um, make it uh, about the reality rather mm-hmm. than sort of some. Um, platonic version of the dust storm. Mm-hmm. Well, I am confident that you did that. Um, so uh, I, I, I sincerely cannot wait to read this book. I'm not getting paid uh, to promote this. I promise Forefront is not getting uh, uh, any royalties on this. We just sincerely love Dr. Myers and believe in his work and, uh, the, you know, the the particular way it glorifies God. And so, I'm thankful for your, yeah, I'm thankful for your time. I'm sure our listeners will be uh, when this episode drops and I'm eager to get my hands on a real physical paper copy (laughs) of uh, Black Sunday, the Dust Bowl Sonnets. Dr. Myers, when is this book being released? Is there a specific date and where can we find a copy? Right now, the plan is for it to uh, be released in um, November from Lamar University Press. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it should be available in uh, all of your usual places on the internet. Um, mm-hmm. And should be, uh, you should be able to order it through your, your local bookshop as, as well. Mm, perfect. Can't wait. Man, I, I, I gotta say, I don't know what could make this episode any better except for what is about to happen. And uh, to conclude the episode, uh, we have Dr. Myers reading a, uh, a poem from the collection. So we're getting a sneak peek here at what is to come. And uh, I, I don't know what he's chosen. This is, uh, this is live radio. Uh, this is exciting. This is as good as it gets, people. And uh, so, uh, Dr. Myers, without further ado... Um, would you finish us off, sign us off with uh, a piece from your forthcoming work? I'd be delighted to. Uh, this is this is one of the poems that's in the voice of uh, Louise Burns, who was a uh, who is the child in the family, um, and this is looking back later as an adult. She's remembering this incident, 
And what I'm writing about here is uh, um, the fact that at a certain point, sort of early, really, in the Dust Bowl, and in, in response to the weather conditions, but also just the general American economy, uh, the government began offering um, ranchers money basically to kill their cattle. Mm. Basically, it was a, a sort of cattle reduction program. And um, I remember reading about this and just as someone who's spent my life around agriculture, whose family still is involved in that. My wife um, works at the local feed store that her family owns. And uh, something about that just just moved me. So this is uh, a poem called Louise Burns Remembers the Government Cattle Slaughter. They dug a ditch out past the north side fence, then clapped, shouted, slapped the brittle bone-stretched hide, and made the big dumb things to run against their will into the ditch in which they died. My daddy flinched with every shot, but I stood still and small and waited there beside the trough. I prayed to God he would not cry and crack the grass beneath my feet where it had dried. Since then, I've buried two good men, stood twice before the Baptist preacher as a bride. I've hit and washed three sons and picked their lice, lost money, men, and hope, the rags of pride, yet can't erase the way they twitched and bled, or how one steer kicked in another's head. 